Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, Iman's work focuses on the intersections between religion and other facets of daily life, including identity, social networks, political views, and economic outcomes. She's especially interested in the lives and experiences of American Muslims. The project she's presenting today was awarded the NYU-wide Outstanding Dissertation Award in 2020, uh, and she's also published in many journals, including Social Forces, British Journal of Sociology, and Socius. Uh, and her presentation tonight is from her book, In Progress, which we're excited to hear about. Um, and we are so glad to have her here with no further ado. Oh, and before I finish, sorry, let me say that we will have questions at the end. So as you're watching and listening, please keep in mind questions, which you can um, type in the Q&A. Um, and at the end of uh, Professor, uh, and at the end of Iman's talk, we will discuss the questions. So, with no further ado, uh, please welcome Iman Abdulhadi. Thank you so much, John. Um, it is great to be here. Um, I well, to be here virtually, <laughs> at least. Um, uh, it is definitely uh, wonderful to uh, get to present to this community in particular. Uh, it feels like a bit of a homecoming um, because, as John said, I um, conducted a lot of this work or wrote a lot of this work on NYUAD's campus. Um, and it's definitely been very influenced by the intellectual community that I had there. Um, uh, so definitely want to thank the NYUAD Institute. I want to thank John O'Brien, who's my wonderful co-author um, and mentor, and um, also my uh, co uh, dissertation co-chair and advisor, um, Paula England, who organized this event initially. Um, so what I'm going to do is actually share um, some slides and um, keep my video on and just kind of uh, present from the slides. Um, so one moment while I do that. Um, John, you can see everything correctly, yes? Yes. Great. <laughs> okay. Um, so this uh, project, uh, the working title right now is How and Why Immigrant Muslim Communities Are Losing Women. Um, and I'm just going to give you a roadmap of where I want to go with this um, talk today. Um, one moment. So uh, first, I want to start by uh, giving you an overview of who American Muslims are. Um, some of some people in the audience may not be aware of the American Muslim community, so I'm just going to give you a really quick crash course uh, in ab about this community and how it's sort of come about. And then I'm going to focus on the question of embeddedness, and this is a term you'll hear a lot today. What embeddedness means is the relationship between people and their communities, or the strength of those ties. Um, for uh, for me, for this project, embeddedness is actually the relationship between um, between Muslims and Muslim communities, um, broadly defined. Um, and so what I'm going to do today is talk about Muslims' embeddedness, what we know, what we don't know. I'm going to talk about how it is that I, in this project, trace embeddedness. Um, and then I'm going to focus on the findings, um, which will be in the form of trajectories, which are pathways of people's relationships to the Muslim community across the life course. And I'll talk more about what that means. I'm going to talk about the difference between women and men, and then I'm going to talk about the implications of these differences. Um, so first, let's start with that overview that I promised you. Um, 
So actually, the first Muslims in the U.S. were enslaved Africans um, who were brought over uh, from West Africa during the slave trade. Um, because in Atlantic um, slavery involved such strict control of um, slaves' religious participation and um, religious expression, uh, Islam didn't really survive across generations, um, as far as we can tell, um, uh, uh, among um, enslaved Africans. Um, so the current community is composed mostly of converts and their children. Most significantly, there's been massive um, conversion within the Black American community starting in the 20th century and going on to this day. And then immigration, um, which started in the early 20th century, but really took off in the um, 60s, 70s and beyond. So right now, 70% um, of American Muslims are um, foreign born, born outside the U.S. Uh, another 12% are children of parents who are foreign born. Um, so 30% of the community comes from the MENA region, um, Middle East and North Africa, 32% um, from South Asia, and 20% um, from other regions. Um, so um, I'm going to talk most, my project is actually about this immigrant group. Um, and um, what I'm really curious about is the experiences of second generation people, um, uh, uh, second generation Muslim Americans, children of immigrants primarily. Um, so that's what this, um, that's who this talk is about. Um, now, there's actually quite a bit of literature. Um, it's funny because I took this picture uh, of this shelf, but actually it's the shelf right behind me. Um, but this is my literature review slide, if you will. Um, it's essentially, these are the books about American Islam, um, including John's book right here. Um, so if you read all of these books, um, and most of them are about um, the immigrant community, although there are some significant works about um, uh, Black Muslims, Black non-immigrant Muslims. Um, but if you read these books, you would get an impression of a community in which people are extremely involved. People are very involved in the mosque. Uh, people are very involved in Muslim organizations like an MSA, which is the Muslim Student Association. Uh, people are really involved in all kinds of um, organizations. And perhaps as a result of being so involved, um, Muslims have very salient uh, identity, Muslim identities. So people are really putting Islam first um, in terms of how they identify and how they walk around in the world. Um, and what I'm going to argue today is that that's that's an accurate picture of one part of the community, but that a lot of people are left outside of um, current scholarship. And um, primarily, I think this has to do with methods that people are primarily uh, focusing their studies on Muslim institutions and Muslim organizations. So starting out with a mosque or a Muslim student association as the um, starting point. Um, uh, of the uh, as, a, as a starting point of their community. Um, but if we look at the survey data, and this is actually data from um, the Pew Research Center's uh, surveys of Muslim Americans, which were conducted in two, 2007, 2011, and 2017, uh, and it's the only national probability uh, set of surveys that we have. Um, we get a kind of different picture. So here people are asked, how many of your close friends are Muslim? and um, a significant chunk say all or most of them, um, but um, uh, a, a, a much a bigger chunk say only some of them or hardly any of them. Um, so you have 45% who are saying some of their friends are Muslim, um, 
but um, not most and not all. So that would that is kind of difficult to reconcile with um, with the current literature. Um, of course, these are the survey data um, sometimes don't give us enough details. Um, another way to look at embeddedness would be to think about how often people attend the mosque. So Muslim Americans are actually a very highly um, in, are highly involved in mosques. Um, you have a significant chunk here, 17% say they go to the mosque more than once a week, tw another 28% say they go once a week for Friday prayers. Um, 14% are saying one to two times a month, but you have almost 40% that are basically never attending mosques. They're only either only going for eight or they're saying seldom or never. So we really don't know anything about these unmosked people. Um, we don't know anything about um, the Muslims who are not involved in Muslim communities. Um, and the problem with survey data is it's hard for us to ascertain um, how embeddedness changes across the life course as well. Um, so the sort of animating questions of this project are, why are some Muslim people embedded in Muslim communities while others are peripheral? Peripheral meaning that they're on the outside of the community, they're more disconnected. Um, and again, embedded means they have strong ties with the community, it's the, the kind of focus of their social lives. Um, and how and why does embeddedness change over the life course? So this is where the concept of trajectories comes in, right? So we're not expecting that people are going to be embed either embedded their whole lives or disembedded their whole lives, but rather that there's going to be kind of pathways into and out of different Muslim spaces. And then finally, are women's trajectories different from men's? And if so, why and how? So those are the kind of questions that I'm asking in this in this book. And I want to give a point of clarification about terms um, is that community embeddedness is not the same thing as religiosity. Um, however, the two certainly impact each other and they certainly flow together. So the more embedded someone is, the more religious they might be on average um, um, and, and vice versa. But um, I do find that there are some people who are embedded in Muslim communities who are not necessarily religious um, because they might be embedded with co-ethnics who also tend to be co-religionists. Um, so having given you that caveat and oriented you towards um, what the questions of the study are, I'm going to move on now to talking about the data behind um, this book. So what I end up doing is conducting life history history interviews. Life history interviews are um, a specific type of interview, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about what they mean. Um, but I specifically conducted them with second or 1.5 generation Muslims. Uh, 1.5 generation means that somebody grew up in the US. Um, so they arrived at a very early age um, in childhood. Um, and then second generation means that they were children of immigrants themselves. Um, and I focused on people ages 30 and 45. The reason being that I wanted people who were relatively set in their in their life course. Um, of course, <laughs> um, having reached 30 recently, I am now very doubtful <laughs> that 30 year olds know what they're doing. Um, but um, you know, this certainly people are more settled at 30 than they are at 20. Um, I cut the age off at 45 because this is a pretty young community. A lot of these spaces that we're talking about were established in the 80s and 90s. And so I was worried that if I wanted second generation people older than 45, um, I would start to get um, people who experienced a, people would be very difficult to find, but B, um, people would have experienced a version of the Muslim community before institutions rose up. Um, 
And then I focus on people coming from a Muslim background. So I don't actually interview any converts um, in this study. Um, so what I do, again, because I think that a lot of the work on American Islam, while really rich and accurate, um, focuses specifically on embedded people, I wanted to sample in a way that drew people um, who were not necessarily embedded in Muslim communities. So I use a name-based sample. Um, I basically take a random sample of a name-based list. I can talk more details about that um, in the Q&A if any of you uh, out there are really interested in sampling methods. And... Um, uh, I essentially approach people with letters and phone calls um, until um, I'm able to secure an interview with them. So the interviews themselves, um, they're very different than when we think of an interview, we tend to typically think of asking someone their opinion about things. So saying, I'm studying embeddedness. What do you think about embeddedness? Um, this is not that type of interview. These interviews are modeled after um, my mentor and uh, dissertation co-chair's uh, interviews. Um, her name is Kathleen Gerson. Um, and um, she actually has a book uh, coming out in the next few months about interviewing methods. Um, these interviews are designed to ask people not what they think of what happened, but what what happened um, to try to gather data on events rather than opinions and views. Um, so they move chronologically through different life stages and then ask about different things. Um, so we cover family, work, relationship histories. Um, these were conducted in a pre-corona um, time in which you could actually sit face-to-face -face and talk to someone. Uh, it seems very wild now to, to think about that. Um, and then the interviews were transcribed and coded um, using Atlas TI. And really, I was focusing on um, community and identity at different life course stages. So what really emerges is what I call trajectories of embeddedness. These are basically pathways that people have in terms of their relationship with the Muslim community. So I'm, uh, what I'm going to do here is, um, what I'm going to do next is introduce you to two of my respondents. Um, I give them pseudonyms, of course. Um, and what I'm going to do is just kind of read you um, a little bit about their lives and um, and then I'm going to use that to situate the trajectories that I find in the data in general um, and talk about what some of these differences and especially gender differences are. So the first person I want to introduce you to is um, a respondent that I call Asif. Um, and uh, I categorize Asif as a detour. And I'm going to talk a little bit more later about what that is. So I'm going to read to you a little bit. Um, so settle in, <laughs> relax. Um, uh, and um, Asif is, he's 32 years old when I met him. He was single, um, his South Asian descent. Um, so Asif grew up in a middle-class family in suburban New Jersey. His parents' social lives revolved around other Indian and Pakistani Muslims, most of whom they'd met at the mosque. Both his mother and father prayed five times a day, read the Quran, fasted during Ramadan, and gave money to charity. They taught Asif and his brothers to do the same. On Sundays, they take the boys to a school 45 minutes away so they could learn Quran and the teachings of Prophet Muhammad. Asif hung out with many Muslim kids at Sunday school, the mosque, and at dinner parties thrown by his parents or their friends. After school, he'd hang out with the other boys from his block, none of whom were Muslim. They'd ride bikes or play basketball. The same kids went to school with him, advancing together from grade to grade. When he got to high school, that group of neighborhood boys became more important to his social life. But their activities started to change. Instead of playing sports, they were going to parties, smoking weed, and chasing girls. 
I asked Asif what his parents' reactions were to his starting to party in high school. Eh, I just kind of hid it from them, he says. I guess I did a good job because it wasn't ever discussed or anything. For college, Asif picked a school nearby so he could commute from home. He kept spending his free time with his high school friends and drinking became an even bigger part of his social life. He says he stopped praying during this period, except on Fridays. Sunday school was long gone and he rarely hung out with other Muslims. He still lived at home with his family and no one commented on his coming home drunk two or three times a week. I asked him whether he thinks they noticed and he says, well, felt like there were times where my parents and my brothers knew but they weren't gonna rock the boat or whatever. After college, Asif got a job in New York City for a couple of years, then decided to pursue his MBA in the South. When he got there, he searched out for other Muslims. He joined the Muslim Student Association and the Muslim Young Professionals, which was shortened to Muppies. Those groups helped him rebuild a religious practice around prayer and fasting, and soon he stopped drinking. That was a big step, he says. He found he had less and less in common with his high school friends, who had all remained in the same town and were partaking in the same activities. When I met him, at 32 years old, Asif had finished his master's and was gearing up for a new job in finance on Wall Street. When he got back to the East Coast, he had connected to the New York branch of Muppies and was also hanging out with people from an Islamic center in Manhattan, known for attracting liberal Muslim young professionals. Settling down was high on his list of priorities at the moment. Asif had dated many women over the decade and a half between high school and our interview. Mostly white girls, he tells me, implying they were also not Muslim. When I ask what he's looking for now, he says, someone who can help me improve my deen. He's on all the dating apps for meeting other Muslims, Minder, Ishkar, Shadi.com, and it's going well. I'm sure it won't be long, he says, of the prospect of getting married. I ask him if he sees himself having kids in the future, and he says yes. How would you approach the subjects of religion, I ask him. He says, I'd want them to grow up like I did, with the same values and practices, he says, except maybe I'd be a little more strict. You know, make sure they have Muslim friends and all that. So that's Asif. Um, next, I want to introduce you to another respondent, Sana. Um, Sana and Asif are actu actually were raised in very similar households. Um, they're around the same age. Sana's married when I met her. Um, but she had an entirely different trajectory in terms of her relationship to Islam and the Muslim communities. She too had Muslim middle-class parents, and she too grew up in the suburbs. Her mother and father hung out with other Muslims, mostly Pakistanis, including several people they knew from back home. She was friends with her parents' friends' kids, many of whom she felt were more like family. In high school, her social circle expanded because she enrolled in the accelerated program and several extracurricular activities. She was a bright, popular kid with good grades and many friends from school. Sana's parents were slightly less religious than Asif's, but still pretty practicing. They never drank or ate pork. Her mother prayed every day and demanded that Sana and her sister do the same. A tutor came to their house once a week to teach the kids how to read the Quran in its original Arabic. Sana got along well with her parents until adolescence. After I hit puberty, my mom just went mental, she says. Incessant calls and strict curfews were the hallmark of her high school years. She couldn't attend school events or go to friends' houses. Her mother's rules were so strict that her house earned the nickname Alcatraz, which is a prison in the United States. When it came time for college, Sana says she purposely chose a school so far away that my mother couldn't call me. Distance from home was a breath of fresh air, though conflict with her mother continued at a distance. 
There was a Muslim student association at college, but Sana wasn't interested. The other Muslims made no effort to connect with her, and they seemed too strict for her liking. She formed no ties with them, building a social network through other extracurricular activities like student government instead. After college, Sana left to graduate school on the West Coast. There again, she had no interest in spending time with other Muslims. Soon into graduate school, she met her would-be husband, a white American man I call Dave, who grew up Catholic. A year or two into cohabiting with him, she introduced him to her parents. They weren't pleased at first, but with time, they came to accept and even love Dave. Sana rebuilt a relationship with her parents as an adult, but she never repaired a relationship with any Muslim community. Besides her family, she has no Muslim friends and never engages in any Muslim institutions like mosques or professional groups. These days, she and Dave are trying to conceive. I ask her how she thinks she'll raise the kids, and she pauses for a long time. Well, I want them to know that they're Muslim and Pakistani, she says. But when I ask if she might send them to mosque or Sunday school, she gives a definitive no. I don't trust the teachers or leaders there, she says. I guess I'll teach them about many different religions and just let them choose. So Sana and Asif start out with very similar pathways and then they end up in very different outcomes. And what I'm gonna argue today is that Sana and Asif are actually not atypical. They're actually very typical respondents, which is why I chose them. Um, what we have here is a chart that's really the crux of these trajectories of embeddedness that I find in this, in this book. Um, on the one hand, in childhood, you have people who are peripheral and people who are embedded. The people who are peripheral, i.e. on the outside of the Muslim community, they remain peripheral throughout adolescence and throughout adulthood. Most people, however, are embedded in Muslim spaces as children. Um, and among those that are embedded, people fall into two groups. One is the experimental group. So As Asif and Sanar were both experimental experimenters in adolescence and early adulthood. They both start to move away from the Muslim community during this part of their lives. The difference is that Asif comes back, he's a detour, and Sana stays away, he's a departure. She's a departure. Embedded people, I find, if they remain embedded in adolescence and early adulthood, they tend to remain embedded through adulthood. The crux of this presentation is about this experimental group right here um, and why it is that some people end up in departures and detours, but moreover, why it is that there's actually a big gender difference and how many people end up in this box versus this box. So this chart actually lays out, so the rows from the previous chart translate to columns in this table. So you have consistently peripheral people over here, departures, detours, and then consistently embedded folks. What you'll see is the percentage of men and women in these consistent categories is pretty much comparable. But when you look at departures and detours, women are much more likely to depart than men are. So 50% of women depart compared to 28% of men, almost twice as much. Um, and, and, and the same is the opposite is true for, for detours. You have 47% of men detouring compared to 18% of women. So returning to this other chart, what I'm going to do for the rest of the presentation is first, I'm going to talk to you about very briefly about each of these panels in this, um, in this uh, diagram. So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about childhood and why I think some people are peripheral and others are embedded or what this early childhood embeddedness looks like. Then I'm going to talk about adolescence and why it is that among these embedded folks, people end up being 
experimental. Um, and then finally, I'm going to focus on this gender difference that, that we've talked about. So in terms of childhood, this is actually, um, I love to show this picture because this is actually a picture of my um, hometown mosque. Um, and um, so this is, uh, so in terms of childhood, um, as I said, 93% of uh, my respondents were embedded in childhood. Uh, and basically that was because their parents were immigrants. Um, they came through and they looked for other immigrants. Um, if they could find people from their hometown or from their country, they hung out with them. If they couldn't find people from their hometown or country, they hung out with people who were from the region. If they couldn't find people from the region, they hung out with other Muslims broadly. But basically under all of those scenarios, immigrants tended to create community with other immigrants who tended to also be Muslims. Um, so kids were sent to the mosque, they were sent to Sunday school. Um, and so you don't really see a lot of gender difference in, in childhood. Um, in terms of moving on from embeddedness um, in childhood to experimentation in adolescence, um, what I see is that um, in adolescence and early adulthood, um, most kids end up facing what John O'Brien calls cultural contestation. So this is where um, kids are facing two different pulls, one from the broader Muslim community um, and, and one from the kind of whatever broader version of American culture they're experimenting with. And I'm not implying that American culture is a monolith. I'm not implying that it's all the same, but I'm saying that people basically were being pulled into away from the Muslim community for whatever reasons. So for most kids, that was things like extracurricular activities, just having friends outside of the community. But sometimes there would be some tension and that's where the cultural contestation came in between what the community wanted them to do and what um, these other spaces wanted them to do. And we see that a little bit with Asif's story. Um, so you have a lot of kids start to compartmentalize in this time. So um, respondents would often say my school friends or my neighborhood friends versus my Muslim friends. So they start to kind of build two separate social worlds. Um, and what I, I think the important thing to think about here is that the Muslim community wasn't big enough or dense enough to just be integrated in most cases into people's broader social life. So it would be just sort of compartmentalized. And over time, people would transition out of those Muslim spaces because they just simply weren't dense enough to hold them in. Um, so you would have, you know, Sunday school would start getting really old. People would get involved in extracurricular sports, other activities, or you know, partying or whatever. Um, and um, they would start to just kind of pull away from these spaces. And really the important thing is that there's sort of no gender difference in the likelihood to experiment at this age. But this is the time period when we start to see a huge gender difference in basically as the ways that adolescence unfolds. Um, and so I'm going to argue today that gender, in, that the gendering of embeddedness and gendering I'm using as a verb here to indicate that basically embeddedness becomes very different for men and for women, um, that the gendering of embeddedness happens via three important social institutions. One is the family. And I think that's actually the most important social institution here. Um, and um, the other is the mosque and the third is the, ma the marriage market. So um, let's talk first about the role of the family. Um, we saw with Sana and Asif that um, Sana, Sana wasn't even doing anything particularly 
um, bad, right? Um, by normal standards, right? Like she was just getting into extracurriculars and that sort of thing. And her parents had an intensive reaction to monitor her. Whereas Asif was out drinking and partying and his parents kind of let him be. Um, what I'm going to argue is that this, um, this uh, culture of monitoring men and women very differently during adolescence led to conflict between women and their family members. And that that conflict in turn led to a distancing that would end up being carried out and growing larger and larger over women's life over the course of women's lives. So um, a little bit more about this monitoring that happens. Um, I went ahead and just coded the different types of parenting that respondents described to me among this experimental group. And what I find is that 20%, 21% of men report that they were monitored, um, but 79% say that they face a don't ask, don't tell environment. Whereas it's almost, the numbers are almost flipped for women, where 73% were monitored during adolescence um, and early adulthood, compared to 27% that were given a sort of don't ask, don't tell attitude. So I'm going to give you a couple more examples from my respondents. Um, uh, a, a respondent I named Bushra, who was 42 when I met her and of Arab descent, she says, in high school, I snuck off to prom. One of my friends ratted me out because my parents were going crazy and calling everybody. They totally came to the Grand March and were trying to get into the prom. I'm so glad I didn't let them in because my dad literally would have beat my ass. I got grounded after that. Another time I took a guy to the dance and someone saw the picture and I got in trouble. I think my mom yelled at me or something. I would always hide those. A picture of me with a tank top or me with a guy in some back place or whatever. Another respondent, Farah, um, who I, oh, who's 37, and of Iranian descent, says, my freshman year, the first semester of college, I was living at home, and it was like I couldn't even meet new people. I remember one girl calling the house, and it was like a new friend that I met, and my dad kind of yelled at her on the phone. I was like, dude, you can't yell at this person. I don't know on the phone. I don't have any friends. I need to make friends. And he's like, you're not supposed to go to school to meet friends. You're supposed to go to school to get good grades. So these are examples of women being monitored, and these are endless in my data. Um, I, to contrast that, going back to Asif, whose story we know, I, I asked him, and your parents didn't have a sense of your drinking? Did your brothers know you were drinking? He says, no. So I said, so there was a sort of a total separation. And Asif says, yeah, I mean, I don't know. We had never had that kind of conversation. Like, hey, what was going on that day or anything like that? But I felt like there were times when my parents and my brothers knew, but they weren't going to like rock the boat or whatever. So Asif was actually living with his parents during this whole phase of his life. Um, uh, and um, yet there were no conversations whatsoever about his behavior. Um, what's interesting too is that the conflict between uh, women and their parents tends ends up having ends up pulling Islam along. So um, parents sometimes end up wielding Islam or a version of Islam in order to control their children's behavior. Um, so Dina, who's thirty one of Arab descent, she says, "My father said a lot of things were haram, meaning forbidden, which later on I learned to not necessarily be true. For instance, he said it was haram to cut our hair." And I confronted him about that when I was in my early 20s, when I just decided to chop it off one day. Because we went to a sheikh's house, and I know in the UAE, sheikh tends to mean um, a person of the royal family, but in this case, she's, she means a religious authority. Uh, so we went to a sheikh's house, and I said, 
his wife, her hair is really short. And he said, just because she's the wife of a sheikh, it doesn't mean she's doing it right. And I said, but he's really religious. Like he gives khutbahs, sermons and things. Like why would his wife do something wrong? He said, no, it's haram. And I remember I confronted him about it and we kept arguing. And I said, where is the rule that says it's haram? Where is the rule? And after we argued for like 10 minutes and it got really heated, he just said, my mother had long hair and I love long hair, so I don't want you guys to cut it. And I flipped out. I said, I don't care what you do, but don't say something is haram. I couldn't even, the words were barely coming out of my mouth because I was just so upset. I said, don't make things haram because you want them to be haram. Like if Islam doesn't say it's haram, then it's not haram. And we've gotten into similar arguments on various other subject matters that I fought him on. So growing up, I always said, you know what? When I turn 18, I'm going to become Catholic. I said, they're allowed to do things. They eat Skittles. They eat Jello. They can wear whatever they want. So I love to give this example because um, I think it's an example of the ways that religion was often deployed in these fights, which is that it had very little to do with the religious content. Um, it really actually had very little to do with religious rules or the parents' religiosity and had more to do with this sense of anxiety about um, women's behavior and women's bodies and their control of them. Um, and I'll talk more about that later, but um, this was really an important part of the conflict between women um, and their parents. In the case of Dina, she was able to actually look up the rule and fight back, but in many cases, um, women took whatever their parents told them about Islam for granted because they had no other real sources of information. And so they had, you know, they had a particular idea of what it meant to be a practicing Muslim, even when their parents weren't particularly practicing themselves. But it was just one of the elements that helped kind of create a distance between um, some women and uh, the Muslim community. Um, and what I'm, what I'm going back a couple of slides, what I'm, uh, what I find is that women end up seeking um, distance from their parents, literally physical distance. Sana says she picked a college particularly far away. Um, other um, other um, uh, respondents, when woman after woman that I spoke to would say, you know, I, I just had to move out of the house. I just had to get out of there. And so they would specifically try to build physical distance between them and their, and their families. But often those distances would translate because, um, because the broader community often reflected the same dynamics that the family was, was um, subjecting the women to. So, um, so the next institution I want to talk about is the mosque. And what I'm going what I'm, what I'm to show you is that women basically felt either turned away or turned off from the mosque. Uh, whereas men felt sort of invisible, like they could just walk in and out, they could they could be there or not be there. And um, whatever they did outside of the mosque didn't really influence, um, or who they were outside of the mosque didn't really influence how they would be treated within it. Um, so to give you um, some examples of that, uh, first, um, here's a photo from this blog that I love called Side Entrance, which is run by Hind Meki. Um, and it's basically women posting up photos of um, mosques that they felt uncomfortable in. And, and um, here's one example. There's this sign on the wall that says, women are required to abide by Islamic dress code at all times. Violators will be asked to leave the premises of the masjid. Please dress modestly, wear non-transparent scarf to cover all hair, avoid tight, revealing transparent clothes. 
So um, the issue of how to present yourself at the mosque was a really a huge issue among my respondents, where even when, respond, when, even when women wanted to go to the mosque or wanted to attend an activity, if they weren't someone who wore hijab in their day-to-day -day life, um, they had to really think hard about how they would present themselves in the mosque. And um, many of them had negative experiences of being told off for wearing jeans or, you know, um, not dressing correctly. So women just as a category couldn't really enter the mosque in the same way um, as men. Um, so that's the sort of turning away, the being turned away part of, of the mosque. Um, in other cases, people were turned, or actually, let me give you another example of the turned away thing. Um, so I asked one respondent, Did, do you go to this mosque? I asked her about all the mosques in her area. And she says, no, I don't know if there's accommodation for women. So I said, oh, okay. And she said, well, I've heard that there is, but the last time I tried to go there, it was pouring rain. And the man at the gate looked at me like he, uh, he saw a shaitan, shaitan meaning devil. Um, so I just decided to keep going and not go to the mosque that day. So this is an example of the kind of day-to-day -day, um, subtle turning away of women from mosques. Um, but sometimes women did go to the mosque and they were turned off by the mosque. Um, so one um, respondent who I call Lubaba, who's 42 years old, she says, of course, the women were stuck in some basement. You can't even hear the khutbah. All the kids were running around. What's the point? It's not even like I can concentrate on prayer. You can't get anything out of it. I just don't go. So a lot of times women who did manage to go to the mosque would complain about the facilities for women um, and um, argue that um, this was the reason they didn't return. Um, so basically having inferior um, spaces uh, was a way that women were turned off from, from the mosque. On the other hand, let's contrast that with um, a typical kind of quote from one of my male respondents. I call him Kamal. Um, he says, it was funny because I used to hang out with my very secular friends. We used to have a lot of fun and go out and do whatever. So um, broadly, he meant drinking and dating. Um, and like the next day, the MSA guys would ask me to be at Juma to lead the khutbah. And I always had to decline it. But just having the ability to be comfortable with both and make everyone comfortable is definitely a skill set I was able to hone. So men often spoke about their ability to navigate Muslim spaces as though it were an individual um, skill that they had, um, that they were just good at being the kinds of people who could occupy a lot of different spaces. Uh, but in reality, they just really weren't pushed to pick one of these spaces um, or pick one of these um, sides of themselves. The third social institution I want to talk about as gendering people's pathways is the marriage market. So women, I found, either selected out of the marriage were either selected out or they selected themselves out of the marriage market. So many women assumed that once they, um, once they led a certain kind of life, they wouldn't be able to find a Muslim partner. Um, some tried to find Muslim partners and were unable to find them. Um, and so the marriage market became this, this moment in people's lives for, for women that solidified their exits and made it official. Um, introducing non-Muslim partners to their families was often one of the first conversations that women would have with their families about um, the fact that they weren't practicing or that they weren't engaged in the Muslim community anymore. Uh, and it was often a big um, source of strife for people. Um, I want to, whereas for men, um, uh, they basically didn't 
seem to exhibit any conflict about re-entering the marriage market. Uh, women would sort of have these long narratives of how they felt crises around who they who they they were eligible to marry um, or who they were eligible to date, and often there would be a long period of trying to hold out uh, and then finding that oops, we're not meeting any Muslims, and now I'm 35 and I really want to get married and or I really want to meet someone and then starting to date outside the community. Uh, whereas men just kind of, when they decided to adult, when they decided to sort of grow up, they would sort of return uh, to the uh, Muslim dating scene. And so ma- the marriage market became a way to solidify either exit for women or return for men. Um, and I'm going to give you an example. Um, this is Minder, the Muslim Tinder, uh, not something I made up. This is real life people. Um, so um, uh, I'm going to give you an example of one of my respondents. I call him Abbas. He's of, of Iranian origin. Um, and he's currently married. When I met him, he was married to a woman who shares his background, also an Iranian woman. And they were somewhat practicing. Um, and I asked him if he had any significant relationships before marriage. Um, he said, yeah, just a few in college here and there, but nothing crazy. I asked him if they were mostly Muslim women. And he said, no. My relationship beforehand was with an Iranian girl. She was Muslim, but she wasn't particularly practicing or a religious person. I asked why they broke up. And he said, different reasons. I mean, a lot of it was probably because of me. I'm sort of a late groomer. And a lot of it was just for fun. I was never really pursuing anybody seriously. So I said, did you have a sense of who would be an ideal partner at this point? Or who was someone you would take seriously as a partner? And he said, obviously, you want someone who comes from a family that's educated. You want someone who has the same culture and values, especially you're Muslim, things like that. So somebody, obviously, who gets along with my family. My family is a challenge. So I said, so the person being Muslim and from a similar culture, that's important to you, like being Iranian. He says, yeah. And, I, and then he says, family was important to me. And having someone who's the same background and can get along with my family was always important to me. Um, so men, um, so what I found in terms of dating behavior is that men would often um, date outside the community very non-seriously. And then when they were ready to settle down, they would return and look for Muslim partners. Um, and they would have a relatively, compared to women, uh, easy time of finding those partners. Um, so to sort of summarize, Um, what you have is that for women, you have distance increasing over time, particularly at moments of transition. Uh, In my sample, women were more likely to marry outside the community than men were. Um, And you have eventual peace settlements with parents, uh, but not with Muslim communities. So often when women would would eventually get to a place where uh, they had a decent relationship with their families, but they wouldn't necessarily return to Muslim spaces and often because of these institutions and their roles. Um, what I really want to emphasize here is that this is not a story of happy assimilation. Um, this is not a story of a community sort of seamlessly melding into the so-called American melting pot. Um, this is actually, women's exits were associated with, with a lot of grief and loss. Part of that is that women had visions of what their lives would be and their parents had visions of what their lives would look like down the line that they often found they weren't able to live out. Um, that seemed structurally impossible. Um, and so there was a lot of... Um, 
there was a lot of sadness uh, in women's narratives of exit. Um, there was a lot of a sense of wanting to be in Muslim communities and feeling like those communities were inaccessible to them. Um, in terms of men, um, what you have at the end is return or continued compartmentalization. So um, men basically either continuing to hold two different spaces and just kind of meander in and out or, um, uh, or just fully returning like Asif did. Um, and you have basically for men, adulting is settling down and coming back and cutting out behaviors um, that they saw as incompatible with leading um, the kinds of Muslim lives they envisioned as children. And so really men have these un uninterrupted visions of the future. Um, um, so, sorry, um, yeah, so men have these uninterrupted visions of the future, you know, so they, they, they imagine their futures a certain way and their realities ended up looking quite similar. Um, I want to just kind of talk a little bit about why we think this all happened. Um, so first I want to cut out some explanations that I thought might work when I started analyzing these data and they don't. One thing is that it's not more religious parents who are monitoring um, children more. Um, so I thought that it would be like religious parents monitor either all their children equally or they are more likely to monitor women than men. Um, I find that, you know, religious parents are kind of like more concerned about their, their kids' well-being, but they're also just as concerned about men's well-being, even if they're not able to like, you know, um, follow that up with actual kind of uh, intensive monitoring, but basically it's not, it's not the case that, um, this is about parents' religiosity. Um, uh, and I also didn't find that there were big ethnic differences. I found that like South Asians and Arabs who were the two, uh, biggest groups of my data had very similar trajectories. Um, so I'm trying to, I've been trying to think through why we see the, the, this gendering. And I think in some ways, this is a reflection of a community that is under crisis. This is a community that's heavily surveilled by the state, um, that is often wielded by politicians as um, ex an example of like either everything going wrong or everything going right. It's sort of a very symbolically significant community in the U.S., despite being a relatively small community. Um, and so in some ways, I think that the, the broader pressures that the community face faces end up being distilled down to, um, to, uh, children, but particularly women. It's sort of a, as an, a curious fact in modern life that so many of the, the moral battles that are fought um, in almost any community are about women's bodies and their choices over their bodies um, and how to execute them. So in the United States, we have these fights about abortion, um, you know, um, or birth control or any number or women's uh, access to benefits like free childcare and whatever. Um, and Essentially, um, I think this is this is this version of this community's battling out its place in, in modern life. Um, I think there are also there were also sort of a stagnant views of the culture of origins among parents. Um, so there was this sense of feeling like the 
you know, this is how we did things back home is a, is a phrase I would hear my respondents quote their parents um, saying. And, um, you know, in reality, back home has been evolving um, over time. And so uh, parents often had a vision of their home culture um, that they wanted to preserve for various reasons that was particularly gendered, but also gendered, but was also stuck in time. Um, and then I think, um, in general, you have this this kind of um, issue of impossible futures, right? It is really hard for a community of first-generation people to imagine what the future is going to look like. And that causes a lot of anxiety about um, how the community is going to survive, how the culture is going to survive. And again, that anxiety ends up being focused on women and what women do, um, and, and less so on on men and what they're going to do. So those are sort of my, um, that's where my thinking is at. Um, and I would love to hear pe other people's thoughts um, in the Q&A. So um, what are the implications of this? Oh, um, I also want to say that Actually, yeah, uh, sorry. Um, so what are the implications of this? Um, for American Muslims, um, what you end up having is like demographic differences in mosque attendance. Of course, you know, in most Orthodox Muslim um, communities, men are seen as required to attend the mosque where most women aren't. Um, but there's also, I think, um, an effect in which even women who would have been attending the mosque um, stop attending because of these dynamics. Um, and what ends up happening is that overall, you end up with the most conservative women or the most engaged, uh, the most conservative women in Muslim spaces, therefore reproducing an idea of what an ideal Muslim woman looks like. So overall, I think this dynamic pushes the communities in a conservative direction. Um, in terms of marriage market, there's a big imbalance. There's a growing imbalance um, in terms of who's available for what. So um, women who stay embedded um, are often having a hard time me meeting men who have stayed embedded. Um, and then men who are looking for um, uh, men who ha have returned um, often uh, end up meeting women who uh, um, have been consistently embedded because the the ones that uh, experimented have left the marriage market. Um, so I think overall, this is really actually really important in shaping what the future of this community is going to look like um, from a demographic and from an ideological perspective. Uh, and I think this also has implications for how for broader sociological questions of one, how do we understand gender inequality and cultural reproduction, right? If we are living increasingly in multicultural communities in which um, different cultures are being brought into different spaces and there has to be negotiation about what elements of to reproduce across generations, um, then uh, gender inequality is going to be uh, very important. And as I've presented this work more and more, um, I'm hearing from people of other immigrant communities that the dynamics are actually quite similar. Um, so it's not really necessarily a Muslim thing, um, but rather a question of cultural reproduction across generations. Um, and then why do some communities maintain embeddedness while others fail? What does it mean for a community to have this big inequality in how it treats people? And um, why do, um, so how do we understand, um, how do we understand um, why some communities are good at holding on to people and some communities aren't. aren't. Um, 
so I am going to stop here and um, I'm really excited to hear your questions and comments. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Iman, for that fantastic talk. Um, really enjoyed it. And I think we had, a, we have over a hundred people uh, in attendance. Wow. So definitely have a, a good audience. Yes. And we have many questions already asked. Um, not sure we'll get to all of them, but we do have until eight. So I will take as many as I can and please feel free to keep adding them as you will, uh, as you, as you can. So one question is, um, kind of how you picked this topic and then kind of related, um, did you kind of, uh, organize it around this gender question or did that, did the gender dynamic kind of arise in the course of, of, of the project? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, um, actually, no, I, uh, I didn't, well, so I picked this topic because I was really interested in this question of embeddedness um, because I, as a, I am a Muslim American myself and um, I've sort of seen people come in at and out of Muslim spaces. Um, and I felt like having, you know, reading all the scholarship on Muslim Americans, I felt like those experiences of exit were missing. Um, and so I wasn't, you know, it was kind of, you know, I was like, I want an explanation for this. Um, and it looks like I might have to just write one um, or, you know, figure and like study it myself. Um, but in terms of organizing around gender, actually it wasn't. And um, um, uh, my, one of my mentors, um, Kathleen Gerson, um, when I was presenting this early project to her, she kept saying, well, where's gender? Where's gender? And I just felt like the gender difference would appear, you know, because I figured you interview men and women and you compare their experiences and there's gonna be, um, if there is a difference, it will emerge in that sense. So that was actually an inductive part of the project. That was not something I anticipated. Um, and it just became so glaringly obvious as I was analyzing the data that men and women were just <laughs> having really, really different experiences. Great. Thank you very much. Um, another question is kind of two questions on the same issue of, do you think that Muslim institutions in the U.S. are aware of this problem? Um, and if they are, do you think they're trying to do anything to address it? Uh, or, or would you, do you have any idea what they could do to address it? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think that, um, I think that Muslim institutions are starting to be more aware of this problem. Um, I think that the dynamics specifically of the gender nature of the problem haven't been totally laid out. Um, uh, but I think that a lot of institutions are thinking about how do we, um, how do we basically create communities that can sustain themselves across time. And I think in, ter in terms of especially mosque spaces, there's this bit reckoning with the fact that a lot of these mosques were created by an older generation to meet different needs than, than the, the needs of the uh, of second generation people. Um, so I, I do think there's quite a bit of interesting work going on and talking about this. I think that um, there are a lot of hard conversations still need to be had though, um, especially about um, especially thinking through um, people's ideas of what a mosque should look like, right? If you're going to have a mosque that feels um, uh, that where you're not comfortable seeing someone in the mosque without a hijab on, 60% um, of Muslim women in the U.S. don't wear hijab. So you're going to, you know, like you need to start having some hard questions about uh, what would it mean to truly be inclusive? Um, 
Yeah, and in ways and how to eradicate uh, gender inequality. But I think that there's a lot of work to be done because, especially, you know, um, leadership in mosques tends to be gendered. Um, yeah. Great, thank you. Um, so a lot of people are just saying how much they appreciate the talk and the topic and the chance to, to think about this well, and hear about you. it. Um, one of these people also asked, um, and, and a couple of people asked, do you think this would be different uh, in kind of the back home uh, in a different country uh, than the US? Um, do you think this has become kind of in the US, there's greater access in some ways to this experimenting phase or, or how would you think yeah. of comparing? And of course, those are all very different within themselves, but what would you say about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's a way in which um, Islam, I, in a context that's majority Muslim, um, Islam becomes really intertwined in a lot of other things, right? It's sort of like that uh, that uh, colloquial thing of like, a fish doesn't know what water is, right? <laughs> because a fish is always in water and doesn't really know what it is to be outside of water. And so uh, for Muslims living in majority Muslim context, perhaps Islam can't be sort of isolated in the same ways. Um, and so I think that there's, I think that people experiment and, and do all sorts of things um, in the context of Muslim majority countries as well. But there isn't necessarily this question of the survival of Islam in this country rests on this, um, you know, these behaviors. There's a sense of like security, um, which I think part of the insecurity in Muslim American communities comes from, um, and I think part of the monitoring is a reaction to this sense of insecurity, but it's sort of um, counterproductive is, is what I'm arguing and actually accomplishing the opposite of what it seeks to accomplish. Um, but I think, um, but I think that the kind of basic lessons of if you want, if you want to create a space that holds young people, right? What does that space have to look like in any context? It's going to need to look um, inclusive. It's going to need to look like the kind of space that meets multiple dimensions of people's needs. Uh, and this goes to the previous question as well. Um, a, a space in which the primary kind of assumption is that you're here and you're welcome and um, it's okay, <laughs> you know? Um, and um, I think that's true outside the U.S. as well. Uh, I just wanted to mention that someone actually had said that they were an architect. And so they thought about a lot of what you were saying had to do with even the architecture of these buildings, which kind of relates to what you said. So I think I want to point that out. Absolutely. Yes. I love that comment. Yes. I think the architecture has a huge element to do with it. I mean, literally almost every woman respondent that I had has mentioned feeling really uncomfortable in Muslim spaces, even ones that remained embedded. Um, and this is uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, the people here are ready to solve the problem, actually. Let's get a mailing list going. Um, no, someone else uh, had a question about the idea, if it ever came up for you, of kind of the reputation of the family or issues of shame, things that you might hear more articulated in different parts of the world. Uh, did those ever come up? Because some people are saying in, in certain cultures and certain families, that might be very... Um, a powerful idea and one that can often be put uh, fairly or unfairly on the women of the family. Did that ever kind of come up in your research? 
Yeah, it did. It certainly did come up um, in terms of, you know, a lot of times I would have these experiences of women just grappling with their experiences with their families. Um, and, um, you know, the question of reputation um, was important. I think one of the interesting things is that uh, the, for the few women who were not monitored by their parents and even for the men, there was this under, for, for people who had this don't ask, don't tell policy, but especially the women among them. Um, there was this idea of like, do what you need to do, but make sure it doesn't embarrass us. Um, you know, like, just like, keep it contained. Um, don't let it out of the situation. You know, don't, don't let people in the community know uh, what you're doing. And there was this sense of shame. But what's interesting is that there's also been this evolution about what the community itself wants. So I had one respondent say, well, you know, my sister married an American white guy and everybody thought the world would end and then it didn't, <laughs> you know? Um, and so like, I think slowly there's been kind of a recognition in the community of these different pathways. Um, yeah. Great. Yeah. I think uh, related to that question is one that someone asked, which is interesting about the women that did a detour back. Uh, does there anything yeah. you know that they may have had in common with, with each other that they were the exception to the pattern you're seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I think that um, the women who came back were often women who managed to find alternative types of communities or um, were managed to kind of recreate uh, relationships with Islam on their own terms. Um, so th it's a pretty small group. So it is hard to like really um, be 100% sure uh, what's going on in terms of the broader patterns. But you know, I found uh, a few a few of the women basically end up um, really working really hard to find communities that felt different uh, from what what I described as kind of the majority of these spaces. So really looking for um, communities that um, felt inclusive, that felt supportive, that felt you know like they were meeting their social needs. Um, and 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 were able to return. There's also a huge push to return because people leave, and it's not like the outside world is that great, right? <laughs> people leave Muslim communities and find that like, oh, uh, because I'm not visibly Muslim, my my um, colleagues feel comfortable saying Islamophobic things to me, or you know, um, like or feel misunderstood by like you know, non-Muslim friends and that sort of thing. So there's a great incentive to try to come back, um, which makes the fact that so many don't come back even more significant because it just really shows the role of these institutions in turning people away. Hmm. Thank you. Um, we have a lot of questions here. Um, yeah. so another one that, that's coming up a couple different ways is when, when, when women do leave and, and marry either a non-Muslim or a Muslim, uh, what do their families tend to look like in terms of preserving any of, of the culture or, or of the religion? Yeah, that's a good question. The real answer to that question is I'm not sure because the sample was so young that it tended to be that their kids were pretty young. But um, I did, so two pieces of evidence that I can wield here. One is that that peripheral group um, that I that I showed in the beginning um, contained a lot of mixed marriages. So uh, in, in the case of this generation, mixed marriages tended to mean that people um, were not super connected to the Muslim community um, just because it was hard for both couple, both partners to be in the space. And so they would often pick spaces that 
you know, more comfortable for both of them. Um, but in the second generation of mixed marriages, um, I did find a lot of women saying things like, like what Sana said of saying, like, we're going to teach them everything or like, we're going to try to introduce them to Islam as an ethical framework. Um, but, you know, or like they'll be culturally or ethnically Muslim. People felt, people felt really attached to that identity, but not as attached to being around other Muslims or religious practice. So if I were to guess, I would guess that a lot of, a lot of, um, children in those marriages in marriages where the other parent is actually not Muslim at all, um, probably will have a hard time being embedded in Muslim communities. Okay. Thank you. Um, a couple of people are asking about if you had either in your sample or if you didn't, how would you think of these issues affecting um, either queer or tran transgender Muslims uh, in the U.S.? It's a great question. Um, yeah, so there were a couple of queer people in my sample. There were a few queer, I think three um, queer folks in my sample. And um, um, I think that... Uh, it's interesting because I think the queer community in some ways is like kind of leading the the charge for different kinds of spaces. Um, uh, it was interesting because I had a couple of straight respondents say that when they went to marry a non-Muslim uh, person, they couldn't find like an imam that would do their like uh, wedding. And they went and found like a gay imam because they were like, if he's cool with marrying off gay people, like he's going to be cool with our like mixed faith wedding. Um, so it's kind of interesting that there's kind of almost this like flip dynamic um, happening. But really, I mean, I don't have enough um, queer folks in the sample, but I think actually the overall trajectories um, uh, were around, uh, were similar in the sense that those who detoured, uh, detoured to alternative queer, queer Muslim spaces, um, and then others just departed. Um, uh, slowly and often parents did come around in terms of their relationships with the kids you know um there were very like there was like maybe one person in my uh interview sample who got like disowned uh, but it wasn't actually a queer person um but uh yeah so so it, it's a similar trajectory actually but of course with the added complications of um of having to also negotiate queerness sure um, thank you. So um, another question that I, I like how you mentioned that, I don't like it, but it's interesting how you mentioned that if <laughs> talk to other communities, uh, people are saying, yeah, we're having similar issues. You mentioned immigrant communities. So I'd be interested in um, which kind of communities you've noticed that. And also people are asking about, do you think it's just immigrant communities or also would other certain religious communities, someone mentioned, for example, evangelical Protestants, do you think they might have a similar pattern? Yeah, I think any community, I think this applies to any community that finds itself um, distinct from uh, the broader society, right, that needs to reproduce a particular subculture. So I actually think about also even community, political communities, um, you know, a com like, let's say you're trying to raise your kids as socialists in the US, right? Um, what is what would that mean to embed them in that ideology? Because I think that um, you know, and this is something I'm still thinking through is how do we account for the deep pressure to, to sort of like shed any difference, right. Without also pretending like American culture is one big monolithic thing. 
right? Mm. Um, but there is a pressure. And I think that people who have talked, people who have studied um, Christian minority communities or any minority community uh, is have, have shown that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so we talked a, a few times about what institutions could do. You talked about the mosques, um, mm-hmm. varying things that mosques could do to try to, to amend this issue. Uh, someone asked, did you see any examples or would you have ideas of what within families could be done, which of course is its own kind of institution, but do you, do you have any ideas of what, what can be done there or what you saw done there? Yeah, I think um, it, what I've seen in fam- what I've seen like among my respondents were families, uh, a sort of open culture of um, where parents parents were very much vocal about their um, ideological commitments and their desires for their kids, but were not trying to enforce them. Um, past a certain age. So, so one thing is, okay, so at, at early childhood and early adolescence, I think the most important thing a family can do if they want their kids to remain embedded in Muslim communities is to embed them in Muslim communities, right? So like go to the mosque, like go to Sunday school and invest in those spaces beyond just dropping off your kids, right? So there were people who, it's like Sunday school was just this thing that their parents sent them to and they would go to Sunday school and Sunday school sucked. And then they would come home and be like, "Ugh, that sucked. And so forever it was like, the mosque is where we go to go to Sunday school, which sucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are instances in which families took a really active role in um, shaping the spaces that were in turn shaping their kids. So um, in terms of the consistently embedded people, the people who stay embedded throughout, they were often people who were parts of communities and parts of families that had a really strong attachment to Muslim communities and that that attachment was a source of joy um, and a, jo- a source of enjoyment. Like I would have respondents from the, that section say like, why would I want to not go to the, like it would, you know, I would always want to go to the mosque because that's where my friends were. That's where we hung out. That's where like we'd grab burgers after like prayer and, you know, um, so I think making it fun, um, making it something that meets people's children's needs on different levels, like that's not just about religious instruction, but also about intellectual engagement, social engagement. Um, yeah. So I think families are a big part in making that happen because these are volunteer communities, you know, um, your mosque is going to be what you make it, frankly, because it's not, you know, it's not run by some like, you know, secret Islam has a, a very um, sort of democratic ecclesiastical, like has no real ecclesiastical structure, right? right? So mm-hmm. a mosque is what the volunteers who make them run the mosque make it. So, right. you know, so I think investing, so for families, investing in communities and then in um, embracing that you can't control what your kids do at the end of the day and what they think. Yeah. And let's not even talk about parking at the mosque. I mean, that's a whole... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, two interesting, two nerdy method questions that you will love. I think this is love. from someone whose name I recognize as perhaps a uh, social scientist. So one is really enjoyed the presentation. I'm one of those weird people who like to hear about sampling, meaning how did you choose the people you interviewed? So could you brief, briefly outline the name-based strategy you mentioned? I think other people will be sure. interested. How do you find Muslims who are going to be part of your interviews? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically what I did was, um, so there's these kind of global 
name algorithms that have been developed um, that basically um, I didn't make them. Um, they're used primarily by like voter targeting and marketing firms um, that are trying to figure out who is likely to be Muslim. So they use them globally. They actually, I looked through them. They, they're not just Arab or South Asian names. They're sort of like mixed. They have names that I would never recognize to be Muslim names. Um, so I bought a list from a voter targeting firm of voters with um, likely Muslim names based on these algorithms. And if someone emails me, I'd be happy to like send them the the people um, that, you know, and, and, and send them what I know about these algorithms. But basically what I really, it's not a perfect sampling strategy. I got a lot of false positives, um, people who weren't Muslim, but had names like Karam, you know? Um, uh, and then I'm sure that I missed a lot of people. I think the people that I most likely missed. So this ended up being a, a sample of second generation peoples, but I imagine that if I were interested in more like converts, I would have missed a lot of converts. Um, you know, a person named John O'Brien would not have, <laughs> would not have shown up on my, on my sure. list. Um, uh, but because I was interested and then voters tend to, um, it, by drawing on a voter registration, uh, uh, you end up with a, uh, uh, a class skewed sample. So my sample, and I actually had, um, I'm not sharing my screen anymore, right? Yeah. No. Um, I had a, here, let me just show you really quick. I had a couple of backup slides on this. Um, uh, you guys can see these, right? So my sample is about 45% South Asian, 20% uh, um, Persian, 5% Black, 25% Arab. Um, and then, um, it's really, uh, it's a very heavily educated, um, sample. So it's, it's about 80%. But if you look at second generation people in the Pew research, um, uh, surveys, what you find is that, um, 70% have at least some college. So it's not actually that far from this, mm. um, sample characteristic. Yeah. Um, here's some more sample characteristics if people are interested. We, can't, sorry, we can't actually see it. Oh, you can't? Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay, postgraduate. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So essentially, um, and I, I think I saw, I, 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 couldn't, I, I can't keep up with the questions, but I think I saw that people asked about Sunnis versus Shia. And, um, yeah. my, my sample has about the same breakdown as the national um, Sunni Shia breakdown. But you didn't notice a difference in, in those I didn't, except for a few um, respondents who were Ismaili Muslims. Um, uh, and I felt like they, it was interesting because a lot of the sort of gendered edicts were less strict, but it's interesting because there was still the same dynamic of pressure on women, um, mm. even though there wasn't like pressure to wear hijab, but there was pressure to like wear Indian clothes at the like Jamaat Khana or, you know, um, so there was, it was interesting to see. And that was part of what made me realize that this was not a religiosity story um, per se, because there's so much um, pressure on women, even when the kind of like what we think of as Orthodox Muslim religiosity and what its gendered implications might be, even when those are not there um, mm. in the same way. Yeah. Um, another uh, methodological question you'll probably enjoy as well. Um, do you think there's anything, could anything be made of kind of who was likely to respond to your call for interviews and who wasn't? Do you think, for example, 
Uh, there's more stigma for women who experimented and are now embedded, so they wouldn't want to talk to you about their life, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, potentially, yeah, potentially. I mean, I think part of it is that when people were so that would I would I would think that that would be sort of a measurement error question rather than a sampling question because people didn't really know what the interviews were going to be about. Um, I mean, often people would say like, "What was this about?" <laughs> at the end of the interview, because I just was like, "Okay, and what was your who were you hanging out with on weekends when you were a kid? Okay, who were you hanging out with on weekends when you were this? You know?" And so they kind of like often didn't have like a coherent sense of what I was looking for. Um, um, I think that it's possible that I don't get, I mean, I think this is a community that faces a ton of surveillance. Um, and um, I think it's possible that people just didn't want to talk to me or that I couldn't reach people who felt more likely to be surveilled. So it's possible that like the number of people who are super embedded in Muslim communities might be higher. Um, so it's interesting to compare with the survey data um, on that end. And I felt like the comparisons were um you know, um, gave me some confidence in the sample, but, um, yeah, it's, it, that's, I think where we might, I might've had some selection bias. It's like, uh, people who feel the surveillance more heavily might have been less likely to answer, you know, uh, or respond to a letter or a phone call from a random person. Great. Thank you. Uh, we'll take a few more here. Um, a couple of people asked about education level, both of the parents potentially yeah. and of the women themselves who are detouring or returning. Did you find that that mattered in, in either of those cases? Um, I didn't really see a lot of differences on that on that end. Um, the sample was so heavily um, upwardly mobile. So even people whose parents were working class um, tended to have uh, been highly educated and been kind of moving. I think that, um, I think an interesting that that thing that happens is that high um, educational attainment and like workplace attainment can in some ways be a substitute or like could kind of smooth over some of these relationships because parents are so are are so intent on their kids making it in America um and so in some ways like women who um women who left the community and were highly educated or have like worked um uh in in high-end jobs um could kind of wield those things as evidence of having succeeded as adults and um, and, and that being okay, you know, like of being like, I'm still leading a good adulthood. Um, but I don't think, I didn't see like major differences in terms of the level of education of the parents changing the way they parented their kids. Okay. Thank you. Um, someone's asking about the, you had these kind of potential explanations that you thought might be there, but then weren't. Mm -hmm. Um, and someone asked kind of how did that, did that come up in the data at all? How did you kind of, did you see any kind of traces of those potential explanations, religiosity, parental influence, ethnicity? Because it is true that I think a lot of people yeah. would assume those would matter. Um, yeah. How did that ever enter your mind or the mind of your respondents or, or anything? That is a great question. And actually, it's funny because um, as I'm revising this, I'm realizing that 
Um, so uh, if, if you're familiar with my work, like I do a lot of quantitative work, um, and this is actually my first uh, qualitative project. And um, so I had this tendency to go through and just like code up people. Um, and so if you actually like read through the dissertation version, there's all these tables um, of being like, okay, let's look at like who monitors and who does don't ask, don't tell by the religiosity of the parent. Um, and so sometimes that for me just felt like just to kind of check my, like these were sort of like gut checks on um, what I was finding because I really was finding qualitatively that I didn't, I didn't think, you know, that it, a lot of these secular parents were, um, were doing the same things or less practicing parents Um but um, yeah, and so I, I kind of ran the numbers a little bit and didn't find those relationships. But I think also, um, but I think there might even be an even more complicated thing, which is that some respondents were saying that their parents became more religious as they hit adolescence as a way to like shield them from potentially like, mm -hmm. you know, there was a sense of like, and that's actually true if in the data on Americans in general. Um, that people tend to become more religious after they have kids and as their kids grow up because they feel like they need to give their kids something to believe in. But um, sometimes it was just like as a way to, you know, um, yeah, control certain behaviors. Um, so moving a little bit more to kind of the big methods questions to something more kind of personal. I mean, do you... Someone asked basically, what would you advise young women kind of in these situations? I mean, do, do you have any idea of what, you know, what, what you would tell someone who was kind of facing these challenges in their lives? Yeah, you know, this might sound, um, yeah, I don't know how this is going to sound, but basically part of it is like, don't select yourself out of the spaces, right? Is that like sometimes those impressions are so strong. And I think a lot of times people, you know, there were times when people felt like turned away from the mosque and whatever, but it would often, it would often be like, it would often be the case that women would, um, wouldn't engage in the space um, immediately, right? Like any kind of, any kind of sign of this type of dynamic would sort of like pull women away and they would leave and not come back, which is fair. I totally understand why you would do that if you were constantly feeling like, you know, targeted in this particular way. Um, but there are times in which you need to kind of stand your ground, right? And just to claim these spaces as being equally yours, right? Um, uh, and I think that's really hard. I think it's hard for people to, um, to put in that kind of work. Um, but I think if you are committed to being embedded in a Muslim community, um, I think finding allies and then using those allies to build out the kind of space that you want it to be, I think is really important. Um, yeah, I think having the hard conversations, I think a lot of times we internalize a lot of the shame around these things. And so we're also, you know, um, if you if you run away and you hide, like you're kind of seeding the ground, but you're living your life in the wrong way, you know, so it's hard. Yeah. But I don't blame anyone for taking care of themselves. All right. Not to put all the pressure on you to solve the problem, but <laughs> just get 
Um, all right, couple more questions, then we're going to wrap up. Um, someone asked about: Do you think this would look different if you had studied converts, included them, or looked at them even separately? What do you think you might see there? That's a really good question. Um, one of the really troubling trends that's been happening is that over the last few years, the the percentage, like the number of Black Muslims, is decreasing, um, and um, I think that. Um, I think that probably there is a broader dynamic at play here. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I can imagine convert parents being a little bit. I mean, okay, so as a person, I, if we're talking about converts themselves um, moving away from Islam, or um, I'm not really sure um, what what I might have found there. I think. Um, it's very likely that we'd find people getting disillusioned and, and moving away uh, for the same reasons as everybody else. Um, but if we're talking about children of converts, um, I can see convert parents actually being a little more rational about some of these things um, or just being a little more uh, intentional because they might not have the same sense of like existential threat um, that other, that like immigrant parents might have. Um, but I'm not sure it's an empirical question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I don't know, this is, I, I, I like what you said about, well, because I can relate to it about having all those tables and thinking about what the potential <laughs> variables that matter will be. Um, and somebody was, was trying to, to put this question in a way that I, I wonder if you ever thought of it, just almost like a parenting style question, like strict parents versus more liberal or, you know, relaxed parents. I mean, is that, I mean, I know that's very hard to tease apart from all these other things, but is that something that you kind of could think about as, as a difference? Yeah. I mean, that's basically the monitoring don't ask, don't tell thing. I mean, I think that it's interesting because a lot of my, almost all my responses were like, yeah, my parents were really strict, but then that strict was looked very different for different people. And I think, um, yeah, it's an interesting question because obviously like the way people monitored experimentation is not necessarily a sum of all of their parenting practices. Um, but yeah, no, that would be an interesting thing to think through. This is like, this is, this kind of shows, this uh, slide shows the um, don't ask, don't tell versus monitoring and how it transitions to departures versus detours. Um, and you can see that really like the monitoring people uh, end up departing, even the men sometimes um, more so than the, um, the than, than the don't ask, don't tell people. But, you know, don't ask, don't tell isn't necessarily good parenting, <laughs> you know. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I have to go back and think through that. Um, we have so many questions here. Uh, a lot. <laughs> People just saying this is a great talk. I can't wait to read your book. A lot of, a lot of fan mail. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. Someone wanted you to mention that the blog where people talk about the entrances to the mosque. Uh, oh yeah, it's um, side entrance. If you go on Twitter and look for side entrance, you'll see it. Great. Yeah, um, Hind Maki is the person. M A K K I. Uh, one interesting question someone had about both academia and I think uh, colleges as places where people can maybe find different kinds of Muslim spaces. Is that something that kind of came up or that you've thought about? Yeah, so um, I found that a lot of times the women who um, 
were already like monitored intensively and were sort of on their way out. When they got to college and went to MSAs, they found them to be, they found them uncomfortable in kind of similar ways as like the mosque. Um, but, um, and then, you know, men had these same kind of relationships of like coming in and out of the space somewhat seamlessly. Um, but I think in terms of the women who kind of come back, um, they, some of these alternative spaces that they find and that draw them in are tend to be kind of offshoots of, um, of like, uh, MSAs, you know, um, like one space that came up is ICNYU in New York, which, um, you know, some people were critical of it and others felt like it was really like exactly what they had been looking for in a community community. So I think colleges are an important place. I think, um, I think, um, yeah, I think that, I think also in terms of that first question of, what communities are working on this? I think colleges are taking this. I think MSAs are probably taking this question more seriously than than a lot of mosques. Hmm. Great. Well, uh, we are almost out of time, so I just want to say thank you so much. Before I let you go, many people want to know how to get in touch with you. So, uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, here, I'll type my um, email address in the chat. Excellent. So there um, it is. I'm also on Twitter, um, but very snarky. So I'm, <laughs> I warn you, proceed with caution. Um, but you're also welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. All right. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, a lot of people are excited about what you're doing, and it really sparks a lot of great thinking about, of course, Muslims and Islam, but also just uh, communities in general. Uh, and we are all looking forward to this book. So. Keep up the good work. Yes, and I gotta write it. There you go. Definitely. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. So thanks everyone for joining us. Great to see you all. And please uh, keep up with the Institute's other events. And uh, everybody take care of yourself. And we'll see you soon. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.